0: Join us on a journey from Genesis to Revelation, all 66 books, the big book, cover to cover. This is Michael Easley in Context.
1: Welcome to the broadcast, and it is my true delight. I say that often on the podcast, but this is a significant delight to have Dr. Tom Schreiner on the broadcast. I have Been using Dr. Schreiner's commentaries for years and have nothing but respect for Tom. Tom has been a professor at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, not Louisville, Louisville, Kentucky, since 1997, and is the James Harrison Buchanan Professor of New Testament Interpretation. He also taught New Testament at Azusa Pacific and Bethel Theological Seminary. He received his Bachelor of Science from Western Oregon University, an MDiv and THM from Western Seminary, PhD in New Testament from Fuller Theological Seminary. His writings include commentaries on Romans, which for you Bible geeks and weirdos, you need to have that on your shelf. First Corinthians, Galatians, Hebrews, First and Second Peter, Jude, and Revelation. He's also written a theology of the Apostle Paul and New Testament theology and theology of the entire Bible. He served in pastoral ministries for many years. He's married to Diane. They have four children and 10 grandchildren. That's got to be a delight. 10 grandkiddos.
2: It definitely is. That's our greatest delight, I'd say. And they're all
1: over the country probably?
2: From Portland to shortly in Charleston, and then we have one overseas. Oh,
1: goodness, goodness. Well, Thanks again, Tom, and truly, I'll say it one more time, it's just an honor to have you on the podcast. I so appreciate and respect your work, and thanks for helping us out on First and Second Peter.
2: Thanks, Michael. It's wonderful to be with you. So,
1: let's jump in. Talk to us a little bit about this individual Peter.
2: Yeah, I mean, Peter is so fascinating, isn't he? I mean, clearly in the Gospels, he plays a primary role. I think he's the spokesperson for the disciples. I think he's the first among equals. I think that's very clear in reading uh, the Gospels and in Acts. I always point out in the book of Acts, I know you've noticed this, Michael. The only of uh, one of the twelve apostles who says a word in the book of Acts is Peter. You see Peter and John together, but we never hear a word that John says. Peter's the only one that speaks, which again shows what an important role he had. and of course, we could I'm happy to go wherever you want right, to go, but right. we could talk about Peter all day. <laughs>
1: I'm struck by, I often say, Peter having nothing to said said something, and, uh, which <laughs> I am very guilty of, but we have so much information because of that that we would not otherwise have, I mean, from a human vantage. But let's jump into these two letters. So rather than date, time, and so forth, give me your sense of the backdrop of 1 Peter. We often say this about suffering, but specifically the letter seems to about suffering as a cause of your faith in Christ. Am I
2: off there, Tom? No, I think that's exactly right, suffering for your faith in Christ. And one thing I like to say when we talk about suffering in First Peter is that there's no evidence of any kind of physical suffering in the letter. So the suffering seems to focus on verbal abuse and discrimination. I think that's helpful to think about because sometimes people will say in the United States... Well, we don't suffer at all for our faith, and of course, we don't suffer as some people are suffering around the world, but I think all Christians suffer. All Christians are verbally abused to some extent, and I think more and more, we're experiencing the kind of thing Peter is talking about, discrimination, being overlooked perhaps for a job promotion, or what have you.
1: When he opens this book, and I'm always struck with Pauline literature, the Christology is so heavy. And in First Peter, we have a, a similar emphasis on Christology. You're, just general observations about how he introduces this, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the resident aliens. Is this the diaspora in your mind? Is this a dispersed believers?
2: Well, I don't believe that they're okay. literally dispersed. I think the readers are mainly Gentile Christians. That's the majority view. And I think this is their home. He describes them as dispersed and aliens, well, for spiritual reasons, I think, not for geographical reasons.
1: I love that he starts out with election. You're chosen according to the foreknowledge of God by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey
2: Jesus Christ. And isn't it remarkable that we have a Trinitarian reference there right from the beginning? You know, he doesn't say, I believe in the Trinity, but. You know, it's texts like these from which we get the raw materials that led the church, I think, under the work of the Spirit to formulate a doctrine of the Trinity. So I think it's easy for us as readers to miss that, right? You know, we read it very fast, but notice that the foreknowing work of the Father, the sanctifying work of the Spirit, and the cleansing, atoning work of Jesus Christ. And I like to say there, hey, Peter starts with God's grace, doesn't he? God's grace in our lives. And that's where we begin because we're needy sinners.
1: Yes, we are. He continues in this Trinitarian as well as Christological emphasis, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again. Help us out, Tom.
2: Yes. um, I mean, that's the doctrine of regeneration, And I think what Peter is saying to the readers there is, it's a gift, isn't it? If we think of physical birth, what did we do to be physically born? Nothing. We didn't do anything. We were just born. And so no wonder Peter says, blessed be the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, just as we did not do anything to be born physically, so we didn't do anything to be born spiritually. That is, to be born spiritually is a work of God's grace. So therefore, Peter says, give him praise, bless him, praise him, give thanks to him. In the midst of your suffering, Peter knows they're going through hard times, but in the midst of your suffering, give him great praise and thanks for causing you to be born again, which he brings up again. We probably won't have time for this. He brings up again their being born again in chapter 1, verse 23,
1: I want to talk a little bit about these three descriptors an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, not fade away, reserved in heaven. I'm sure you've done deep spade work on
2: those. Well, the inheritance in the Old Testament is the land of promise. You know, if you read the book of Joshua, again and again, the inheritance is the dividing up of the land for Israel. But for believers in Jesus Christ, the inheritance is the new creation that's coming, the new world that is coming, the new universe. Personally, I think it's gonna be this world, the world we're living in right now, transformed. And what does Peter tell us? That world will last forever. That world will never be corrupted. No pollution in that world, nothing that would taint that world. And the other thing I'd like to say is, Peter's writing to people who are suffering and going through hard times, this is one of his fundamental themes, he says, think of your future. Your inheritance is secure. This is not just pie in the sky, right? He's saying, look, you've got an inheritance, and that should motivate you to follow Christ in the midst of difficult times, because, Michael, you and I know this, we've lived longer Life on earth passes quickly. Yeah. And Peter lifts our eyes to what is coming, and what is coming will never fade away. That's an amazing promise.
1: I often remind our congregation and our listeners that, you know, America's 244 years old this year, and to think of the power and prosperity and that all we've achieved and yet on the timeline of Israel, <laughs> on the timeline of world history, we're barely even measurable. And yet we're so, you know, I call it the I, mean my focus. It's here and now and my life. And this idea of thinking vertically, as I like to say, about this future, you know, hope. We have a living hope. Talk to me about inheritance. There's three word forms. If my, it's been a while since I looked at it. Claironomias, clarao, clarao. And there's some discussion about, and you mentioned this world being part of that. What was the word he used? Imperishable, undefiled, won't fade away. Is there a salvific part of that? And then other things, I read one scholar I won't name who believed this had nothing to do with salvation, but it was more the reward aspect of inheritance going back to the Old Testament and how they would inherit based on their faithfulness. You've given thought to that whole word form and how it's used and how Peter uses the idea.
2: Yes, that's a great question. I would say when we look at verses three through nine, I believe he mentions salvation twice. And I think salvation is a different way of describing the same entity. In other words, I think the inheritance is another way of describing salvation. It's another metaphor. Now, it includes salvation being rescued from sin, but I think the inheritance also includes all that we'll do in the world that is coming. And of course, much of that is hidden from us. But we do know we're going to have tasks, we're going to have responsibilities, we're going to rule the world with Christ. I mean, what's that going to look like? We don't yeah. really know. But why is that described to us? I think it's probably because we couldn't yeah. ingest it or fully take it in. Yeah. It's going to be astonishing. So yes, we're going to be saved. I think you're right in what you're suggesting. I don't want to minimize salvation. That is amazing, right. isn't it? Right. But but I think it's more than just being rescued. It's being rescued to fulfill I would say the original task that was given to Adam and Eve, and that was to rule the world for God. They were to rule the world for the glory of God, and through Jesus Christ, we will rule with Christ, we will rule the universe to come with Him. Wow! <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I can't imagine what that is going to mean. Astonishing promise.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I was talking to another guest recently. He was a sci-fi buff, and we didn't get into it. But I've often wondered, especially believers who get so enamored by science fiction, that's something in us going, what's it going to be like? And so we invent these realities, and I think you're spot on there. We have no idea. I remember back to Dr. Ross saying when Adam was told to, to cultivate the garden, that's a Hebrew word stem I have long forgotten, but it had a connection to worship yes we think about you know trimming the hedges and mulching and weeding the flower beds and and he said no that's about worship and that what we do in that new reality whatever those tasks as you mentioned might be it's a form of worshiping this king and that gets kind of exciting you think about there's an eternal plan for how we're going to serve him and thank him and we're going to delight in it right it's not going to be oh i got to go punch the clock this morning
2: now, Yeah, we're going to love it. We're going to love every minute of it. There'll be no drudgery, no boredom. It won't be a duty. It'll always be a delight.
1: So we go in chapter one, rejoice, trials, praise, love, believe, rejoice, suffer, glory, this sort of a cadence that he's painting for us, Tom. So if you could give us a, a summary of chapter one, what's Peter's outcome. And then a follow-up question, I like to think specifically, how do people apply this when they read it?
2: Yeah, I would say if we could summarize what Peter is talking about in chapter 1, grace, God's grace unleashed in your life through the Father, Son, and the Spirit, suffering, hope, and this is a lot of the letter, and then virtue. So God's grace is unleashed in your life Even though you're going through hard times, even though life is difficult, but Peter says, chapter 1, verse 13, I think this is a key verse, set your hope completely on the grace that is being brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So hope, set your hope on the future. Don't set your hope on a comfortable life now. God may give that to you, but he may not. Set your hope completely on the future. And then when you do that, what does Peter say? Be holy as I am holy. You will live a virtuous life. So be holy as I am holy. And then later in the chapter, what does holiness look like? It's a life of love. Love one another fervently from the heart. Because when we all know this, right? When we're squeezed and pressured and life is tough and the tensions come in, we tend to lash out at others. We may get irritated or provoked or whatever, or we collapse in upon ourselves and worry about our lives. So it's very practical, isn't it? Peter says, set your hope on God, and when you set your hope on God, you will be freed to live a holy, loving life. Of course, none of us have the resources, at least I think when I hear that, I can't do that, I can't do that. That's why Peter begins with, God has given you grace. You're born again. God foreknew and elected you. The Spirit sanctified you. Christ cleansed you. He's saved you. So he's given you resources, not to be perfect, right? Peter recognizes we fall short, but to live a new life in Christ. So it's a a very hopeful book. Who knows? I'm not a prophet, but life is not easy these days. And who knows what's coming? But But I think 1 Peter is very relevant to us in stressful times. He reminds us of where to put our hope. What do we set our affections on?
1: So as I've studied the holiness aspect, I like what you're talking about, virtue. That's a good way of thinking of that. Number one, I think most Western Christians have a pretty uneven view of what holiness means. And we get tied up in works. And if you're like me from a Catholic background, it's hard to divest the I got to do something to get God's favor, Um, and yet we're supposed to lovingly obey him in Ephesians 2.10, for example. But when I read chapter 1 and he gets to this, the hope connecting with the Holy One, and you shall be holy for I am holy, probably wasn't original, but I, I came up with this phrase years ago, do we have a holy fear toward God, not meaning that we're afraid of him, but the word reverence always falls off to me. It doesn't. I have reverential fear. Eh, that doesn't really work for me. But if I have a little trepidation, this is the God of the universe. He's paid for my sins. He loves me. He calls me to be holy. And there ought to be a, tell me if I'm wrong, a bit of a pause in how we approach this holy one and how we think of him as holy.
2: Yeah, I think that's right. It is hard to yeah. explain in English, but it isn't paralyzing fear, right? If Correct. Paralyzing fear, then we can't do anything. But it is, I like to compare it, it's sort of like the fear of doing something like jumping out of a plane, say, which I have not done, but it's just an illustration. So with the fear, there's an excitement. There's an excitement. God is awesome and great. And in a sense, he's scary. But not paralyzingly scary, but neither is he just our chum. So there is a a kind of terror that doesn't terrorize us, I would say. Right. Yeah. Right. But it's hard to express that it's in English, very hard. isn't it?
1: We have our vernacular of horror films and terrifying yeah. and, you know, falling off something, but, but there seems to be, that's why I use the word holy fear. Okay, as we move on, chapter two, we hear about this newborn babes who long for pure milk of the word, that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. And I love the way he ties these words together. You've tasted the kindness of the... What a marvelous metaphor he's using there. Help us, again, what this idea that he's doing. When I came to Christ, I couldn't get enough of the Bible. I I was reading it like, you know, crazy. But confession, full disclosure, as I got sedentary in my Christian life, apathetic, I didn't have the same passion and interest, Tom.
2: Yeah. Isn't it interesting that he says like newborn babes. Sometimes, at least I've heard that verse only applied to new Christians, but I think Peter's saying we're newborn babes our whole lives, so to speak. We're to be like newborn babes, and why do we need this admonition? Because sometimes we flag in our lives, don't we? Sometimes we wander. We're prone to wander, Lord we know it, prone to leave the God we love. So we need to be reminded, and I think in our reading of Scripture, we need to pray and meditate. It can become—actually, Michael, I grew up as a Catholic as well. So, our devotional times as Christians can be sort of like doing the sacraments can become for Catholics. You know, you just put in the time. Check the box. Yeah, you check. You got it done. But—and of course, not every day is going to be the Mount of Transfiguration, as people have said. But— I think God meets us regularly if we slow down. That's hard to do in our mm. lives. It's hard to do for me. Our lives are full, and, but anything that ends up being good in our lives, it takes time. Even with iPhones and uh, these computers make things so efficient, nothing good that happens in our lives doesn't take time. I know that in my writing. I'm an impatient person. I want to finish my projects. I'm a very completion-oriented guy. But, you know, I can't rush things. And I think that's true in our time in God's Word. We've got to linger in His presence to taste that He's kind again. And that's hard to do.
1: Yeah. I encourage our friends all the time. I love the technology. I use it all. But I say in the morning when you read your Bible— don't use tech because mm. the temptation mm. to check an email or, in my case, to get on Logos and start doing word studies, that's my downfall every time when I'm reading something. What's that word? And then I'm lost in an hour in a Greek and a Hebrew word study, which, yeah. you know, it's not a waste of time, but it's no longer become devotional. It's become academic, and it's a fight that I fight, but I appreciate your admonition. Let's move on to this living stone picture. We see it several times in verses 4 through 8 eight, I believe, if I haven't missed one, talking about this.
2: Yes, well, I think, you know, chapter 2, verses 4 through 10, that's a very interesting part of the letter, because there, I think, Peter cites so many, or alludes to so many Old Testament texts, and I think he's arguing, look, the temple theme, when he talks about the stones... The temple, which plays such a massive role in the Old Testament, and really in the New Testament as well, the temple is fulfilled in Jesus Christ himself, who is the living stone and the cornerstone. So the temple points to and is fulfilled in Jesus. So, And of course, we already saw this in John chapter 2, right? Jesus says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it. And they think he's talking about the physical temple. Right in Jerusalem. So I think Peter's, you know, picking up what Jesus himself taught him. And then Peter says, and you as saints, if Jesus is the temple, you're the living stones in the temple. Jesus is the cornerstone, the whole building is shaped around him, and and then, of course, if we go to Paul in Ephesians 2, the Spirit dwells in the temple, and we're God's temple as well because we belong to Christ. So a very profound use of the Old Testament.
1: Then he has this another list: a staccato, chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, God's own possession. You know, as I often say, that's four or five sermons for me. <laughs> just those, just those references. I often say to the uh, uneducated American, if I said Gettysburg or Vicksburg or you know even the Civil War, they would have very little context for that. How much more are the let's say the younger Christian or the growing Christian who doesn't know anything about those terms I just read. Chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, God's own possession.
2: And those are all the privileges that belong to God's people, Israel. Exodus 19, Isaiah 43, those are a couple texts Peter draws on there. And I think, again, he's saying to the believers, one of his main themes is, you are privileged. You are privileged to be God's people. Isn't that an amazing thing, that God has folded you in to be his people? So I would say now, people, I don't know where you are on all these things, uh, Michael, but I would say the church is the restored Israel. I don't think that means there's not a hope of salvation for ethnic Israel, but I think he's saying, you're God's chosen people. You're his you're His new people. and And I think at the same time, Romans 11 says there's a promise of salvation— for ethnic Israel that still hasn't been fulfilled.
1: Mm -hmm. Which is a, and you deal with that in Romans, and that'd be another, that'd be a fun program just all in itself about replacement theology and what's Israel and who's Israel today. And my friend Charlie Dyer wrote a book called Whose Land Is It Anyway? And the short answer was God's. (laughs) (laughs) Because all the debate will never stop long as we're on this planet. Right. We move then into verses 13, technically probably breaks thought by 17, but submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as one in authority or to governors as sent by him for punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. That's hard stuff, Tom. Mm -hmm. Help us in a culture that abhors authority, right? I mean, it seems more and more people resist authority. I don't recognize this particular person as my president. I don't like this. Give me some help.
2: Yeah, if you want to see a strength in our culture, I suppose it's a strength that we recognize that authorities aren't perfect. If you want to see a strength in it. But there's also a profound weakness. The original sin. Of Adam and Eve in the garden was a rejection of authority. (laughs) God has given us authorities for our good. And of course, Peter says here, that includes the government. Therefore, our inclination should be to submit, to follow authority, to do what they said. And I think in our culture today, often the inclination is the opposite. The yeah. first inclination is to question, to buck, to resist. There are times to resist, but those are the exceptions. The norm should be to, to follow authority. I'm, I mean, I'm just speaking biographically here. I'm thankful my dad, who was a loving dad, but he also taught me to respect authority and that authority was a good thing. And I think our culture is kind of hardwired in the other direction these Mm -hmm. days. Mm -hmm. So Peter's words, you know, this is the word of God. Peter's words still speak to us today. Do you see
1: in your students, I know they're, you know, coming to a seminary, to a boys college perhaps or a seminary. Are they, I don't want to characterize them, but do you see, I mean, they're Christians, young men and women coming, but are, are they also kind of sorting through this?
2: I mean, I think inevitably they are I mean they live in this cultural water, although I do have to say, I don't teach at the college, I teach at the right. seminary, but our students are amazing. I mean, I'm blessed. My daughter, who did a lot of subbing in public schools in Louisville, she would come home and tell me stories of what happened in the schools in terms of resistance to authority, sometimes resisting her for such trivial reasons and i would i wouldn't get on my knees but i probably should have and i'd say well thank the lord for my students cuz they are wonderful in comparison of course they they face this i think it shows up maybe more you know in a school you don't like a teacher you don't take him again <laughs> so i think it's harder in our churches yeah. you know you're you're with a pastor year after year You maybe get tired of him. I think we quickly get tired and bored with people. We begin to see their faults. Then I think there's a tendency, even in our churches, to begin to resist authority. Of course, as a person who's been a pastor, we need to be held accountable. We can make mistakes. People need to tell us mistakes we're making. But still, you know, the New Testament is clear. The people in the congregation, their inclination should be to follow the authority of their pastors. Yeah. And, and Peter says that's true of the government. Yeah.
1: Yes. He continues, verse 17. Again, you're the Greek New Testament scholar. Uh, Submit yourselves to the Lord for the Lord's sake. Verse 13, honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Mm. And that seems to summarize mm. his thought.
2: Yeah. I think it's very significant. Honor the emperor, which was Nero when Peter was writing. (laughs) Now, Nero probably wasn't in his bad phase yet, but still, you know, Caligula had preceded him in 37 to 41, and he was a very wicked person. So it's clearly honoring the office, isn't it? Yes. So that's the first thing I'd say. The second thing I'd say is, but Peter, in one sense, if you rightly understand what I'm saying— in another, in one sense, Peter's not egalitarian. In another sense, he is honor everyone. Every person has dignity and value. Michael, we're maybe from the same generation. I really, this truth was really impressed upon me as a young Christian by Francis Schaeffer, who so emphasized mm. in his ministry yeah. the dignity and worth and value of every human being. I'll never forget his commentary on the Gospel of Luke, and the title was, No Little People. And I thought that was a great title for the Gospel of Luke. And I think that's what Peter is saying here. Everyone matters. But there's a special love for the family of God, of the brothers and sisters. And then, of course, God's first, right? Fear God.
1: I love his differentiation. And again, if I'm overstating it, please correct me. But it's honor, submit but it's fear god
2: Mm, mm. there's we talked a little bit
1: about that holy reverential caution not just this respect but he's the god of the universe and we need to fear him in a holy sense and to me that's it's kind of a great reminder Yes, these are human servants and as you've correctly stated, in my view, honor the office. Honor the you know, it's not the individual who might be licentious or a horrible person, yeah. but it's the office of the king, the office of governor in our world, or president, or congressman, or city council person. But fear God.
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely.
1: Well, let's move on. He then in chapter two continuing, he talks about Christ being our example. He suffered for you. While being reviled, do not revile. While suffering, utter no threats. When does the believer Tom have the opportunity? We think of Paul when he's about to be bludgeoned. He calls on his Roman citizenship. Other times, of course, he doesn't have that opportunity, and he's beaten and flogged, and you know, of course, he endures a lot. Second Corinthians is it chapter eleven, with all the you know day and the night I spent in the deep, all the things he went through that he had no control over. So where is that? Sure. And I, I don't like the word balance. I think Christians overuse balance like it's extreme here, extreme there. It's not necessarily balance, it's accuracy, right? So when we endure suffering, when we're mistreated, and I'm going to ask you this, is this for the gospel's sake, not the generic talk suffering we talked about? Where does the Christian leverage that and say, okay, I'm going to submit to what's happening to me, or I have an opportunity or a right, quote-unquote, to say, time out, you can't treat me this
2: way. Yeah. Well, you know, this is not a paragraph that's addressed to slaves. So I think Peter is thinking of a situation where, by the nature of the case, the slave doesn't have any rights. Mm. So it is, I think he is addressing a situation where you really don't have a choice. Now, it is interesting, sometimes... I mean, I think of the book of Acts, sometimes they run when suffering comes, sometimes they stay, which I think I get out of that, that there's, there's no formula. Sometimes it's not clear to us why they do what they do in, in the book of Acts. Right. But there isn't, there isn't any formulaic answer why in Acts 16 didn't Paul and Silas... Say they were Roman citizens before. Maybe there wasn't time. I don't know. We you know where they or maybe there wasn't an, an out. In prison
1: yeah, maybe because, they did That wouldn't have worked at that juncture. Yeah, we don't know, yes. do
2: we? Yeah, it's one scholar I read said maybe they endured it because they wanted to identify with the suffering believers. There. Who knows? But here, I think in First Peter, the slaves they don't have a choice, and so I think he brings in Christ to say. You know, there are, sometimes people are in abusive situations or difficult situations, in a, even an employer situation. Sometimes they don't have a choice. I mean, sometimes we do have a choice. I don't think it's wrong if you have a choice. We have to look at specifics, but I don't think it's wrong if you have a choice to move on and get out. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. Paul says in First Corinthians seven twenty one, if you can be free from slavery, be free from it. But I think Peter is addressing a situation where they didn't have a choice. And sometimes they're beaten and mistreated as slaves. And then, so isn't this remarkable? I mean, it's hard to imagine anything worse than being a slave, being owned by another person, and then being beaten and mistreated by your master. But then I think Peter says, well, that is really difficult, but remember No matter how difficult it is, Jesus has gone through this as well. In fact, his suffering was greater. In our lowest moments, I haven't suffered like this at all, but in our lowest moments in life, he's with us. He's gone before us, and he experienced every form of suffering, which includes, verse 23, terrible verbal abuse. And when I'm verbally abused or mistreated, I want to threaten other people. But I mean, that just rises up, especially if it's unjust. But he didn't do that. He entrusted himself to God. So I think Peter's saying to the readers, entrust yourself to the God who judges righteously. You may not be vindicated at all in this life, but just as Jesus was vindicated, you'll be vindicated. So. You know, these verses about Jesus, he's our substitute, that's unique. He's our, I think, the penal substitutionary atonement. He took the penalty upon himself that we deserved, and he died in our place. But he's also our example. He, he suffered as our example, and we pray. And maybe for a lot of your listeners, it's just being verbally abused by your boss. Well, that's hard too, right? But Jesus is our example. How do we respond? We could respond with a fit of anger on our own part. We understand that, but he's saying Jesus shows us the way to go. And he doesn't, I think it's very interesting, Michael, he doesn't say stuff it, just stuff it, stop it. He says, give it to God. When that feeling of injustice floods you and you want it to be right, I have a close friend who endured a lot of injustice, and he told me what helped him most is he'd pray constantly, Lord, you vindicate me. You vindicate me. He didn't. So I like that, that the Bible doesn't just say, well, just stop it. (laughs) Stop (laughs) thinking about that. He couldn't stop thinking about it, but he says, every time you think about it, give it to God. So
1: You've undoubtedly done some pretty deep work in the Greek text. In this paradigm we render, he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Of course, to himself isn't there in the Mm. text, but Mm. we... In, in, introduce that for our smoothing the reading. And You've already touched on this, but expand mm. a little bit, if you will, about how the, back to application, how the believer keeps entrusting him herself to the Lord when things don't go the way, when perhaps injustice, maybe illness, because we are talking principally, is it fair to talk about suffering? And we're looking at Christ's example, and no matter what he went through, he kept on, and if I remember correctly, that's an ongoing active. Verbal tense, it's not just once. you keep on, you keep on, you keep on entrusting. trusting. Correct? Wrong? Am I wrong there?
2: No, you're right. You're right. That's an imperfect imperfect tense verb, which designates ongoing action and past time, which is, you know, as you intimated in your question, that's encouraging. And I think, yeah, Paradidomi, he kept handing himself over to God. You know, ditto me means give, to give himself over. He kept giving himself to God, and that's that's what we need to do. And I think another reason that's helpful is sometimes people think we're saying, okay, give yourself to God. You have a hurt, an injury, a, an insult. You know, you do it once for all, and it's over. But that's not what he's saying. The pain may strike you the rest of your life. We can imagine some really horrific things that happen to believers, Every time that comes up, give yourself afresh to God, entrust yourself afresh to the one who judges righteously, and recognize that, you know, we could begin to think, well, I've done it so many times, and nothing's happened. Come on, Lord, give me a break. (laughs) Come on, Lord, give me a vow here. (laughs) But the justice is, it isn't in this life, necessarily, you know, we wait for the future. And that's why Jesus died, and, but he was raised from the dead. That's yeah. when he was vindicated.
1: So we go in chapter three to a section on marriage, which let me ask you two questions. First of all, what do you think was in the context, as much as we know, why Peter is delving into marriage here? And then give us your sort of your thumbnail high view, wife submissive to your own husbands. And then he comes down and talks about. The women of the past, and then he's going to husbands in the same way, verse 7, live in an understanding way, and then to sum up, and we'll talk about that passage, because I love that passage, verse 8, the piling on of terms there. So first of all, why do you think he's addressing marriage as much as we can ascertain, and then give us Dr. Schreiner's overview of what Peter's telling us about marriage here?
2: Yeah, well... I agree with those who say, Peter gives six verses to the wives, only one to the husbands. Is that because the husbands were so good? (laughs) I don't think so. (laughs) Paul corrected that, right? (laughs) In Ephesians. (laughs) Right, right. But I think what Peter does, Peter focuses on those in this book who were apt to be oppressed. The government, starting verse 13 of chapter 2, the government oppressing its citizens— masters oppressing slaves. You know, he doesn't say anything about masters. So wives, the danger with wives is to be oppressed by husbands, especially, not only, unfortunately, but especially by unbelieving husbands. And so he says to them, he says, your call, your call is to submit to your husbands, which, you know, he describes it in verse... Five, what that means is women—they put their hope in God. They're not putting their hope in their husbands. You put your hope in God. You submit to your husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham. But Sarah didn't put her hope in Abraham. <laughs> right. uh, he made mistakes. He sinned. She put her her hope in God. Now, I do say. I think it's important to say in this day and age that. I think if there's abuse going on, that Peter is not calling upon wives to submit to abuse. I think Peter is thinking of situations though where a person can't escape. I mean, that happens in some situations, right? There are are difficult situations, slaves, and sometimes in families where someone can't escape. But I think we'd all say as pastors and counselors today, that by all means, you should remove yourself from an, an abusive situation. So, you know, having said that, this is so contrary, whether we're men and women, to the spirit of our age. The path forward for a woman, married to an unbelieving husband, is not to browbeat him to believe, which is tempting, right? Because we're talking about an unbelieving husband. But to live in a way that makes the gospel radiant to her husband. And honestly, as a pastor, I'm sure you've experienced this. Actually, we have a case like this in our church right now, and I can't go into the details, but the woman in our church, the woman in our church, the way she's behaving to her husband, I stand amazed at her godliness and her sweetness and her love that doesn't mean she doesn't say some hard things to him, which he needs to hear. She doesn't enable him to do things that he ought not to do. So submission doesn't mean she's a doormat. We, right. But on the other hand, her godly life, her love for him, it's truly a miracle. She's clearly putting her hope in God mm. instead of her husband or even in herself. Right. And it's a model. Everyone who sees it in our church, we just praise the Lord for what's happening in our life. And then he says, of course, men could be tempted to do this as well. But he says, women, don't put your hope, verses 3 and 4, in your looks, in your adornment. And, of course, our culture, I don't think this is new, but there's a great temptation for women. And it can be for men, but I think it's more particularly for women, tends to be. To put one's hope in external adornment, as Peter says. That doesn't mean I don't think Peter is saying don't wear jewelry. I think sometimes this has been misunderstood, or wear, you know, the cheapest clothes you can find. I think Peter's saying that's not what you should focus on. Be careful that you're not, I would say that you're not dressing ostentatiously or seductively, both of those. Ostentatious dress. Seductive dress, both of those are wrong, and then, if I jump ahead, happy to jump back if you want to, what he says to husbands, husbands are to live in an understanding way, I think that means the way God wants them to, which means husbands are to understand their wives, which is i 've been married almost forty six years that 's a lifelong project i 'm still <laughs> still learning more about my wife yeah, yeah. every day. I can yeah. tell you some very stupid things I did with my wife when I was young, even trying to be kind to her, but I had this image of what a wife would want. And so I'd do these things for my wife, and my wife would say, I don't like that. And I'm like, well... Wait a minute. (laughs) According to the TV shows I saw, that's what you should like, you know? So, you know, we understand our wives. And then we recognize that they're equal, they're co-heirs with us in the grace of life, Submission doesn't mean they have less dignity or value. Mm -hmm. They're co-heirs. And when he says they're the weaker vessel, you know, there's a lot of discussion on that. I am very convinced that means weaker physically. So they're weaker. And why is that important? Because, and we see this today, right? A A man can intimidate his wife through his strength. And I think another way is voice. You know, if there's an argument a man's voice is stronger typically most cases and can overwhelm a wife and so i think he's saying remember god has given you husbands you've, he's given you greater physical strength and that shows up in other areas be gentle with your wives yes. be, be kind don't intimidate don't intimidate your wife but love her it's so interesting that it, Otherwise, your prayers will be hindered. That's a remarkable statement. Well, oh, that's uh,
1: why I wanted to inject for just a moment, Dr. Don Sanukian, who is out at Talbot now, I believe, but he was at Dallas Seminary for many years when I was there, and he preached an entire sermon on that verse about your prayers being hindered. And he had a very yeah. clever way of his, you know, his homiletical outline. And he was great; is a great communicator. But his point was. You know, if you look at this passage, honor, fellow heir, grace of life. And if you do this, if you don't live with her in an understanding way, which I'm always encouraged, Peter didn't say, understand your wife. He said, in an understanding way, (laughs) because he's you intimated. We've been married 40 years and counting. (laughs) I still don't understand the woman some days. And I know she doesn't understand me, but that said, you're compassionate, you're patient, you're understanding. And she is a fellow heir. I'm not any better. And then that little that little mm, twist, mm, so amen. your prayers won't be hindered. So is he just saying there, if you're dishonoring your, your wife, if you don't live with her in an understanding way, if you don't understand her, she's a co-heir, we read otherwise, your prayers are going to be frustrated. What does this mean?
2: Yeah, I th- I think that's what it means. I think it reflects what we find in other places in the Bible. Because if one is consistently... <laughs> Mistreating, if we're consistently mistreating our wives, we're not living in a godly way, then we're not following the Lord. I mean, why would he listen to our prayers? Because obviously, it's our prayers are just designed for our own selfish benefit. So Mm. I think it makes perfect sense. It's not like, well, here's some alien idea that creeps in, your prayers will be hindered. Peter's saying, clearly, you're not living for the Lord, (laughs) you're living Mm. for yourself. Why would God answer your prayers when they're not? They're not geared to the glory of God and the good of others. The way you're living, you're you're using your wife as a tool for your own pleasure.
1: Let's take a quick look at verse 8. I, uh, Cindy and I were part of the Family Life Weekend to Remember marriage conferences for 15 years, and we had an entire session, Tom, on this one verse about being harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, humble in spirit, and the emphasis was give a blessing instead. So when you're injured, when you're insulted, when you're offended, instead of being, you know, tay-to-tay or tit-for-tat, no, give a blessing to that person, and then you'll inherit a blessing. Mm, And mm. from a pragmatic standpoint, it might not always disarm the situation. It also shows that you're trying to follow Christ, not the moment of your emotions or your hurt feelings, but... This idea of inheriting a blessing. Earlier, you talked about inheritance. I asked you the question about, is it salvific? Is it rewards and some of these things? Can you help us here when he says, what is he talking about that you're going to inherit a blessing if you do these things well?
2: Well, that's controversial. My take on it is... That's why I'm asking you. You're Dr. Schreiner. You're supposed to tell me. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Well, well, good (laughs) scholars disagree. I think... You know, my very good friend, Wayne Grudem, I'm sure you know that name. Yes. Wayne and I would interpret this phrase a little differently, but I, yeah, I understand him to say, you'll inherit eternal life. And he's not, that's not work salvation. He's not saying you're going to earn your salvation, be really nice to other people and and you'll be saved. I think it's really a way of saying, when we live this way, what we are now accords with what we will be obviously, none of us does this perfectly, right? But if we live in a sympathetic and loving way, and we're compassionate and humble, and we don't return evil for evil, that's all evidence that we have eternal life, Mm -hmm. because that doesn't come from us. That's why Peter started the letter of the way he did. So, you know, he he ends this saying, the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Well, I think that's forever. But those who seek peace and pursue it, well, God's face of favor is upon him. Yes, in this life, I agree, there's blessing in this life, but I think also in the life, in the life to come. I would want to say, you know, Peter is talking to people who are suffering, and the blessing may not be as great in this life. They might even kill you, right, in Peter's context. Yes. So, I don't think Peter is saying, They're going to turn around and love you. They may take your life. But ultimately, ultimately, you're going to be blessed. And the martyrs, you know, who have gone before us, you know, I just think of the story of Lady Jane Grey. I'm sure you know that story. A 16-year-old girl who became queen in England in the 1500s and then was put to death when Mary took the throne. And what peace she had, what trust in God. I mean, that's kind of come from God.
1: <laughs> mm.
2: She really lived out these verses. She didn't even want to be queen.
1: <laughs> right.
2: <laughs> she just got thrust in this political yeah, smart situation. Girl. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, mm. yeah, what remarkable verses. A good, I always think when I read this, that I need the Holy Spirit <laughs> to live like this.
1: Amen. Okay, Tom, take us to chapter five and kind of walk us through two or three of the main themes that we ought to be reminded about.
2: I love chapter 5. As we come to the end of the, of the letter, this community that's suffering, Peter addresses the pastors, or as he calls them, the elders in chapter 5, verse 1. But we see in chapter 5, verse 2, they're to shepherd God's flock. I mean, that's the verb for the noun pastor, pastor, the Boy, yeah, pastor mm-hmm. God's flock. And then he speaks of overseeing that flock by the way, our English word bishop comes from that word. I think oversee is a much better translation. So these uh, men are elders, overseers, pastors, shepherds. And isn't it interesting what he tells us, don't do it because you have to, but because you want to. That's verse two. Don't do it out of greed, but out of an eagerness to serve. Don't pastor to be a tyrannical leader but to be an example. So, I mean, I was a preaching pastor for 17 years. Pastoring's hard. I think it's, a. I mean, I'm a seminary professor. I have tons of pastors as friends. And I think pastoring is one of the hardest jobs out there because people want you to be a good speaker. They want you to be very compassionate. They want you to be a good leader. They want you to be a wonderful counselor. And none of us has all those gifts usually, <laughs> and uh, which is one reason why a team of leaders is helpful. But the people in the congregation, they often, even though they know this in their heads, they often expect more out of pastors than pastors can possibly be. Mm-hmm. And God uses that to sanctify pastors, but it's hard. But he reminds pastors here, what's your motivation, finally? Your motivation is to love the flock. Obviously, there's going to be some days you don't want to do it, but ask God to give you a desire to care for the flock. Remember, Jesus is the chief shepherd, and I think it's very interesting. Verse five: the congregation is called upon to be. Their inclination is to be to submit to the leaders. Yes. To follow the leaders, which is again, is a major theme in this book, and everyone to be humble towards. One another. So, humility and love is the oil by which a church operates. And I have to say, my personal experience is our congregation treated me wonderfully, almost Good. always. Good. But not everybody has had that experience. That's rare. That's rare. I've, yeah. I've been very, yeah, I've blessed. been very, yeah. very blessed.
1: Let me inject yeah. just sure. real quickly. I love also what Peter, you talked about oversight. So, we have two interchangeable words in the New Testament, presbyteros and episcopos. And we talk about their interchangeable use between Paul. Peter uses both of them here because he talks about the elder as the presbyteros, where we get presbyter, obviously, and the fellow elder, which is an intriguing compound, Soon, I'm with you. And then he says, shepherd the flock, you mentioned mm. that, exercising mm. oversight. And that's the episkopos word. So it's a very full orbed section about what this oversight is, this shepherding the flock of God. And I couldn't agree more with, you know, it, it's a complicated job. I think there is certainly gifting and wiring for people to do this. And I think it was a theologian, Thielman, who talked about an exquisitely painful loneliness that, you know, to do these things in the spirit of Christ, you're going to do hard things. And even as a professor, you know things about people that you can't ever say. And you look at them in a class mm. Mm. Two times a week. If you're a pastor, you see them in the church every Sunday or whatever, and you know oh whether it's sin or complications, and you're to shepherd them, you're to love them, and you've got to do it voluntarily, and you can't mm. be overbearing. And mm. these are heavy words. When we install elders or leaders in local churches, we often appeal to this this passage to say, what encourages me all that to say, you're an example. At the end of the day, you're not perfect, but you're an example to the flock that we want you men who shepherd, elder, pastor, teach, if you put all those together, oversee, be an example. And that means we learn, we admit our mistakes. You refer to the, you know, the spirit of Christ helping us do these things we can't do in the flesh. So to me, you get that pastoral part of Peter who denied Christ and then who's reinstated. And I think in some respects he gets it maybe. Is that too colloquial?
2: Yeah. And I think it's, you know, you pointed this out at the beginning. Peter doesn't call himself an apostle, but a fellow elder. He identifies Mm -hmm. with them. Isn't that interesting? Yes. I mean, he calls himself an apostle at the beginning of the letter. And the other thing I'd say is the elders are plural. One of the things I found most helpful in my ministry is having the other elders around me. Who were supportive? I mean, obviously if they're not supportive, it's hard, but some can be I have rather interesting. Wonderful fellow elders. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I didn't have that experience. My experiences, I felt like my weaknesses, which you know you're really aware of those when you're the preaching pastor, at least I was, and my weaknesses, I felt they complemented, and that was a huge comfort to me and strength yeah. in my ministry. I wasn't alone.
1: So, Let me ask you this, Tom. Give me a summary of verse Peter. Give me a summary statement of the letter. I would talk to you for hours on it, but let's land our plane here.
2: Well, so chapter 5, verse 12, many people have said, here's the summary of the letter. This is, you know, the the last part of the verse. I'm encouraging and testifying you. This is the true grace of God. So Peter says, I've told you about the true grace of God in this letter, and then what does he say? Stand in it. Hold on, hold on. Life is tough, life is difficult, but God's given you grace. God's given you strength. Stand in the grace that he's given you. So I think that's a wonderful summary of the letter, or even the previous verses. Humble yourselves under God's mighty hand when hard times come, cast your cares upon him, The devil's wanting to destroy your life through suffering. Hang in there. Hang in there, Peter says. Stand firm in the gospel, I think is his call in the entire letter.
1: Dr. Tom Schreiner, who is currently the professor at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, where he teaches New Testament interpretation. And you're going to have the pleasure of hearing Tom again on our next broadcast on 2 Peter So thanks for joining us on this broadcast, and we'll see you next time.
0: Did you know that In Context is fully funded by our listeners like you? If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is produced by Hannah Seymour, mixed and mastered by Sonomorphic, and music composed by Chad Cates and Blair Masters.